Welcome back to the P2P Soapbox. I'm your host and P2P BFF, Marcy Maxwell. Thanks for joining us today as we tackle a really important topic in our industry. Have you ever found yourself at a fundraising event and something just didn't feel right? That maybe some of the old school methods of fundraising just don't hold up in 2023? Have you ever stopped to ask yourself if your fundraising message is ethical? Does it really align with your mission and values? We have long used heartbreaking imagery and stories to highlight the urgent need for donations for our missions. But have you ever wondered if this perpetuates negative stereotypes or re-traumatizes the very people we aim to help? Or on the flip side, Have you painted a picture of a perfect success story only to discount the very real challenges that your organization is trying to solve? When we're chasing big financial goals, it's tempting to cater to donor preferences, but it can't come at the expense of our mission and the well-being of our community. Today, I am beyond thrilled to share my conversation with Megan Cohn, Covenant House International's AVP of Site Development, and Colleen Belt, their AVP of Peer-to-Peer Fundraising. Megan and Colleen are passionate advocates for ethical storytelling, which informs their work with Covenant House International's Signature Sleep Out program. Before we dive into our chat, let me give you a sneak peek into their world. Covenant House International provides housing and support services to young people facing homelessness and trafficking. Since 1972, they've opened their doors to over 1.5 million youth. Their signature event, Sleep Out, offers an immersive overnight experience where participants connect with the youth at Covenant House before heading outside to sleep. In their roles, Megan and Colleen lead the Sleep Out series and drive innovative peer-to-peer fundraising strategies. In today's episode, Megan and Colleen will share some personal and pivotal moments that triggered some transformative change within their team and their event, and how they are reframing messaging and the overall experience to ensure that they are always in alignment with their mission of providing housing for youth facing homelessness. We'll explore how they are responding to feedback from supporters and the importance of respecting personal boundaries in storytelling. So let's jump right in to this vital conversation with Megan Cohn and Colleen Velt from Covenant House International. Welcome, Megan and Colleen, to the P2P Soapbox. We are so excited to have you on. Thanks, Marcy. We're excited to be here. I know. So I think you both said it's your first podcast experience. It As is. guests, yeah. As but guests. We're, we're avid listeners of podcasts. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I am so excited to have the two of you here. And I would love to hear a little bit from the two of you. Um, we've gotten to know each other through the Peer-to-Peer Professional Forum over the past couple of years. But I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about the both your personal and really professional journeys that led you to join the Covenant House International team. You know, how'd you get started with P2P? You know, I'd love for you to share, you know, what drew you to the mission of Covenant House? 
So Colleen, you joined the Covenant House International team first. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey? Sure, absolutely. Um, I started at Covenant House about 10 years ago, working at our Newark crisis shelter right out of college. Um, I was excited to have a full-time job doing just about anything, saying yes to anything, and really fell in love with the mission and the way that every single person, whether you were in the fundraising office, the janitorial staff, the kitchen staff, or a social worker, took on the mission as our own. There were 40 plus young people who lived on site at that crisis shelter where we were coming to work every day. We would get to know those young people uh, who really were living in that, even if I would go sit at my desk and you know write fundraising emails or plan events, like I would start and end my day um, talking with the young people who were on these journeys from homelessness to independence and were really not that much different age in me than I was. Um, so I... After a couple of years, I left. I went to another organization. I realized like, oh, not a not everywhere is like that. That's that's kind of a unique thing about Covenant House. And started to look back and say, maybe there's a place for me. Um, and found a home on the peer-to-peer team at Covenant House International. And that was a game changer. I love peer-to-peer fundraising and the democratic nature of peer-to-peer fundraising. Uh, I love the idea that I might never be able to write a $5,000 check, but with a little persistence, a little creativity. Um, I can raise $5,000 more. And that was really exciting for me. It's exciting to meet these people and um, who know that already, or some of who are discovering it, who feel so empowered in our mission. Um, I love peer-to-peer fundraisers. I just always know like, these are my favorite kind of people. And this is why we bonded because we all love (laughs) peer-to-peer. Now, what about, so you brought Megan into the mix. So Megan, how did you end up on the team? Yeah. So my first job in peer-to-peer fundraising was at the Avon Walk for Breast Cancer, which I feel like is a common thing that I hear among a lot of P2P fundraisers. And from there, it is a very small world. Um, So from there, I went to Eventage and Covenant House was one of my clients. They're an event production firm and fundraising consultant. And Covenant House is my favorite client. And it was so different from any event that I had ever worked on because the impact was so tangible. And that's really what drew me to Covenant House was you could see exactly what every dollar raised was doing, which a lot of P2P fundraising is, it's all full of really passionate fundraisers and amazing organizations, but it's not always so clear what every single dollar is is being put to work for. So Colleen brought me over <laughs> to the peer-to-peer fundraising team at Covenant House, and I've been there for four years. So let's talk about Sleep Out, because that is your big campaign. It's one of the top 30 peer-to-peer fundraising programs in the U.S. So can you just give us a little bit of a sense of what that event looks like? What's the scale? Absolutely. So the elevator pitch is that you are giving up your bed for one night so that young people can sleep safely at Covenant House. Um, What that actually means um, and what I try to tell people pretty quickly because I'm terrible at elevator pitches and I love to talk um, is that you're actually coming in for a full experience. Sleep out is, is not necessarily an event. It really is an experience that we hope you go through. Um, So of course you sign up, we have our fundraising commitments, um, but when you show up that night, you're doing a lot more than taking your sleeping bag out to a parking lot. We do several hours of programming that has changed over the 
10, 11, 12 year history of sleep out of how many hours we have been known to go overboard there. Um, but that's really because we wanted our participants to dive deep into our work, our mission, get to know our young people as individuals, have chance to connect with them and see there are so many more interesting things about them than being homeless. Um, so we really took that very seriously of like saying we want every sleeper, every person who leaves this event to feel confident going back to their donors to say, I know what Covenant House does. I know why youth homelessness is a problem. I've met some of these young people or alumni, which is what we call someone who has been through our program and is on the other side of it. Um, and I can tell you their stories and I can tell you why this matters. Um, so that programming is very important. We usually do some sort of activities. So you're connecting with each other. It's very engaging. You can't sit back and listen. You got to participate. Um, and it culminates in, in taking your sleeping bag outside to the end of the night, at the end of the night. Um, we always sleep somewhere that is safe and legal. We try to be very clear in all of our messaging that we are not replicating the experience of homelessness. We point out frequently throughout the night that we have security. We have friends and coworkers and sometimes family around us. We have staff who are available throughout the night um, to chat with you. We have bathrooms available, snacks, um, really the works. And yet given all of that, it's still really challenging to sleep outside on the concrete for one night. Even knowing you're going to go back to your bed the next day, you can take a shower, you can go to work, or maybe you have the day off, um, that it's a one-night experience. It lingers. It stays with you. It is not easy. Um, and especially after going, you know, hearing hours of stories and programming, you can leave feeling a little emotionally exhausted too. So we do always end that experience with a morning reflection. Um, we gather everyone before you head out for the day to really debrief on what you expected, what you thought would be different, um, and how you're going to carry it into your life, um, whether it's that day or that week or that year. We do have a high fundraising expectation for the event. And I think that our participants take it really seriously. And with them being able to take our programming back to their donors to say, this is what I learned. This is what I was wrong about. It's just a really powerful experience. I love hearing how meaningful and intentional you are with the event experience. I think it, it's clearly more than just your average, you know, Saturday morning 5K that someone might participate in uh, for a cause. So one thing I know we've had some conversations about is how the program has evolved and how you've been evaluating and evolving the programs to always make sure that the experience and the event aligns with really with the mission of your organization and does not conflict you know, ethically with what you are trying to accomplish as an organization. So can you share just a little bit about how you started down that path? Um, you know, how did you raise these concerns to your leadership? You know, what changes have you made as you've continued to evaluate the sleep out experience? Yes. So I think one of, one of the side effects of having an event that is so deeply rooted in our mission is that we question it and talk about it a lot. So I, I think we were fortunate that we sleep out has always been in a state of evaluation of questioning, like, what do we want to change? How can we make this reflective of our mission? How can we better showcase our youth? Um, that was an ongoing conversation that I felt like 
happened before, even, you know, before I started working on the sleep out team. But for me personally, one of the stories that I always think of, of how I really started to question things and come into my own um, as a leader on that team was in 2017 or 2018 at a sleep out event when we had an incident during the program where a young person was arrested and we were inside, you know, there's windows all around. I had made the decision to cut the budget for the pipe and drape curtains that block off the windows because the glass was frosted and said, we don't need it. And of course, in the middle of the night, um, some, you know, something happened. A young person was thrown up against the wall behind where the program was happening. You could see the outline through the frosted glass. You could see the sirens. Um, it was very jarring. It was very triggering for a lot of folks in the audience. Um, and it stopped the program in its tracks. I bet. Yeah. It's, it's, I still get a little nervous thinking about it. Um, and I found myself as, you know, the event lead, but not necessarily a leader of the organization um, being looked at as the person of like, what do we do? So we had, you know, one of our senior leaders had been speaking and she sort of turned to me like, do you want me to keep going? Do you, you want me to stop? Like, Colleen, I need a lifeline here. I think I had gone immediately into like, we need to let security know that this is happening and make sure that young person is okay. I saw our staff running you know, to that security booth and said, all right, that piece is handled. Like I, I got up, you know, that part is probably where I blacked out a little and probably said something to the effect of this is one of the things that happens when you're at a 24 seven crisis shelter, crises happen. Um, our, you know, our staff's going to go see if this young person's okay, but we're going to, we're going to continue with the program and made that decision to carry through. Now I got home the next day and was like, holy cow, like, I can't stop thinking about this moment. I was thinking about, you know, I slept out myself that night. It was the thing that kept me up all night, thinking about that young person, who they were, what the day was ahead of them, what our staff would have been able to do, how we could have handled it better or differently. Um, I found myself wanting to talk about it with everyone and just saying like, how could we have done, handled this better? Like this felt like a big moment that didn't go well. And, you know, sort of getting those like, lovely reassuring things from my team of like I think you did the best you could move on it's okay until Monday when we got an email from a participant um who had said you know the experience really affected her too and she was um angry she was hurt she was a little traumatized um by witnessing something like this and witnessing our failure to really stop and address the moment to talk about the systemic issues that caused this moment to check on people make sure they were okay um, and I think she rightfully pointed out that we didn't have the right leadership in the room who would have been able to say that. Um, this participant was a young woman of color. Every speaker we had in the program that night was a white woman. Um, she brought up, you know, this is a very different experience for a person of color because we know, you know, police violence disproportionately affects folks of color. I read that difference. She was like, this colored my whole experience for the night. And you just, it fell flat and it, you looked like you didn't know what to do. And it showed. She sent that to the president of the organization who forwarded it to my team. I, I won't say that I'm brave. And I read that email and probably, you know, bawled my eyes out for a little bit that I had failed this person, that I had failed our mission, that I had failed you know, the standards I set for myself and how I hope I can react in a crisis. Um, 
And again, I think our team is very supportive and said, you did the best you could do when sometimes people are upset, you got to, you know, you let it go. And I said, no, I'm dying to talk about this. I know I didn't, I know I could have done better and I need to hear what she has to say. So I responded, I reached out, we had a two hour coffee together um, where I got to hear more about her feelings of the experience, what she thought could have been a better response, um, why it impacted her so deeply. I got to explain a little of, you know, here's what was going through my head. Here's, you know, what happened behind the scenes that maybe I didn't articulate in the best way to make sure people knew like our staff are out there. They're making sure this young person's safe. They are going to make sure um, if they are incarcerated, we have a legal team, like really sort of explaining the full process that we're no strangers to police interactions, the criminal justice system and the youth homelessness system are very overlapped. Um, so we walked away, I, I thought, feeling smarter, feeling better of like, okay, something came out of this and we could learn how to make this event better. Um, my sort of charge from that was we need more diverse leadership in our program because we have to be able to better represent our work. And we had been you know, just having our event staff or just having who is available and not really being purposeful to think, do we have a representation of our staff, of our youth um, in the program tonight, in speaking roles, in leadership positions, in support positions, so that, you know, whatever happens, no matter what, we have a a stronger, broader range of folks who are prepared to deal with it. Um, So that was something that was, I think, received very well by my team. I uh, Kevin Ryan, who was the president of Covenant House at the time, said, pulled me aside and gave me the best compliment in my career. She said, he's never had an angry donor come back and say, thank you. I'm going to continue to support. And wow. he was like, what did you do? I was like, I, I just listened. I knew I was wrong. I knew I could do better. I knew I did my best in that moment, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to want to do better in the next moment. So that is a long-winded way to say That felt like the start of my path of just, it's always the right idea to, if something feels icky, if something feels uncomfortable or uncertain, that you have to raise it, that you have to say, I'm not so sure about this and talk it through. We are lucky that we have a culture that is very accepting of that and encouraging. It's not to say every idea gets enacted immediately, um, but there is space to, to have a dialogue. There's respectful consideration of other ideas. And there's always an attitude of like, we can and should do better. Wow. That, I mean, that is a career defining moment, I would say, uh, as to how you process and think, and also just a personal defining moment that you went through. And I think that's, I love that you said you did the best that you could do in the moment. That doesn't mean you couldn't do better the next time. I think that's I mean, that applies to every, that applies to life, right? Um, so Megan, in, in your role in a, in a leadership position, you know, when you think about some of these changes that have started to evolve as y'all are continuing to look at the event, can you talk a little bit about how, how these issues and concerns have been received? What kind of changes you've made as you're evaluating sleep out? Absolutely. So like Colleen said, we have a culture of listening and learning. And that listening doesn't just apply to our donors. It also applies to the young people we serve, to our program staff. Really, everyone involved with the organization has a voice that is heard. And not every change is 
so dramatic. We started with the changes that we could make just on our team with the events. Um, we no longer have young people who are um, current clients speak in the program. We rely on alumni who Colleen mentioned earlier, are people who are on the other side of our program to talk about their experiences. Um, we have expiration dates on stories that we share, which we used to use stories in perpetuity. I came in and there were stories from five, 10 years ago that we were still circulating. So we did make a lot of these small changes on our own. There were some changes that we needed to budget for, which was obviously we had to think carefully about that. And one of the biggest changes that we did make was compensating our speakers. Um, that went over really well with our whole team. So we were able to implement that. But that was a huge thing. We, Our speakers are experts in their own stories and should be compensated as such. So that was one of the, the changes that we implemented to sleep out as well. And one of the bigger things that we did that did require both a little bit of a budget and executive buy-in was implementing ethical storytelling training for our whole federation from leadership to staff at our sites. So everyone goes through an ethical storytelling training that Colleen kind of spearheaded, which has made a big difference just in the way we not just talk about the mission, but in the way we talk about the sleep out event as well. I, I love hearing about how you are compensating your speakers and having worked in the nonprofit space for a long time, I think sometimes there is a, it's a really vulnerable place that we're asking people to put it, put themselves into when they're telling their story, right? Maybe it's something, especially if it's something they're still in the middle of, right? And they don't know what the outcome is going to be. Um, but I think sometimes it can create a culture of, People feel they have to say yes because they're getting these services, they're getting this treatment, they're getting something from the nonprofit. And it becomes, you know, feel like a little bit of a power imbalance. And we never want people to feel like they have to tell their story. They owe us um, the chance to sell their story. Now, again, I know there are plenty of people who love to do it and who love to come out and say, this is my way of giving back. But I think by offering people the opportunity to to be paid or compensated in some way, it just can remove that barrier. I think the the idea of informed consent plays a big role in how we select and talk to our speakers and storytellers. We make sure that they know exactly the audience that is going to be receiving their story. If that changes at all, if it was a story we were sharing in one email and now we're going to put it on the website where it's going to live for a year, we always go back and receive permission fully for the audience that the story is going to be used for. Absolutely. Well, I know, you know, nonprofits, I think sometimes can get criticized for, you know, call it tragedy porn of just people wanting to see or wanting to promote the sad side of the story. Or then there's the flip side of they just want to focus on kind of, you could call it toxic positivity of just the positive outcomes, which obviously all of these stories incorporate both, right? Or hopefully they're going to incorporate both. So a big approach to this story, to ethical storytelling that you've been talking about is 
your communication, your messaging. So how do you strike that balance between sharing a story to educate and inspire donors while also not violating someone's personal story or their boundaries? That's one of the questions, you know, we obsess over that question all the time. And we're certainly guilty of that. We have, you know, in our work, it's on the one hand, there's images of a young person who is disheveled and sitting on the street. And the story that accompanies it is one of incredible hardship um, and trauma and things that are sort of meant to create shock, sympathy, and maybe pity. And the opposite is is only the success story of look how amazing this young person is who has succeeded so much, who's working, who has their own apartment, like they are a superstar. And we have to be somewhere in the middle and we have to be able to show both sides. The issues facing homeless young people are really serious. They're life-threatening. We know that very intimately, deeply, truly. Um, There are young people in the New York City area and the United States in 2023 who are dying of hunger and who are facing human trafficking. Like the stakes are real. We also know our young people are amazing. We know they're creative, they're curious, they're thoughtful, they're funny, all of these wonderful things. Um, It's about an and, not an or. So in our work, in our storytelling, we're looking to say, do we have a diverse array of stories? Are we showing, you know, yes, we are allowing someone to talk about, you know, speak from a scar, not an open wound, which is an ethical storytelling principle of maybe things that have happened to them that they've overcome um, in context of the rest of their life. Are we allowing them to talk about the things that they feel proud of, not us defining, hey, you went to college, so that means you're successful. Them saying, this moment in my life felt like a huge success, and I'm going to define that in terms of, you know, in the scope of my trials, my challenges. Um, so that first is that diversity and range of stories of treating our young people as the full whole humans that they are, where homelessness is a piece of their journey, but not a defining character trait. Um, and then I think we also have to identify the right way to tell that story. Um, I meet young people all the time at our crisis shelter who have stories that really impact me. That doesn't mean I have to say, hey, you just got here seven days ago. Can you get up in front of a crowd and tell everybody something horrible that just happened to you? Like, that's probably not the right move. Um, It still might be a story that's impactful, that is appropriate to tell, but maybe it's through an alias. Maybe it's through an actor, um, which in our case, you know, we do sometimes pay our youth to um, tell stories and, you know, really, as Megan said, like compensate as storytellers. Um, but we also do, we can use actors sometimes too. If a young person says like, I don't want to be associated personally, I would like to be anonymous in this story. Um, it might be a video, it might be written. So trying to get away of that from that false choice of like either, you know, you can't tell these types of stories, you can only tell these. It's much more gray in the middle of like, we're going to tell parts of both and just try to do it in ways that feel appropriate, authentic, um, empowering for the storyteller. What has, what has been the response, you know, internally, externally to the way you're telling these stories to some of the specific things that you've done, you know, on site for the sleep out experience, you know, what, what are people thinking? Well, I think always the hesitation with changing the way you do something is, well, the way we were doing it was working in terms of fundraising. 
these events were really successful. We were raising a lot of money. So there is that thought in the back of your head that, well, this sharing this type of quote unquote tragedy porn works. But the response has been incredible. We have over 50% retention rate for our events. Our revenue has gone up every year, even during the pandemic. And I think the most rewarding thing for Colleen and myself and our team is seeing our participants not just throw themselves into the event and raise money, but they're using the language that we're encouraging. We use person-first language. So we say youth experiencing homelessness, not homeless youth. And just seeing our participants adopt that language, embrace the tools that we're providing about racism and how that affects homelessness, about LGBTQ plus issues in with our youth. Um, that's We're so proud of that and we love seeing it. And I think that that's the biggest indication that the the shift that we've made in our storytelling, it is still working. It is still having a huge impact on both our participants and our mission. And I think internally, maybe I'll speak for myself again instead of trying to describe it to everyone, but it is it is about creating an organization that you feel really proud of where our outsides match our insides. Um, and I think I've seen us move towards you know, our team has only gotten more diverse in as far as race, background, age, gender. Um, that means more people are under the tent, more people's voices are going to be heard. There are folks who have said to me straight up, the messages I was seeing from Covenant House 10 years ago did not resonate with me. I'm sure they resonated with a very specific person. That means it was working for that person, but it wasn't working for me. So that's always that other side of the coin that we try to remember of like, yes, when we say something's working, it means it's working in one specific way. It's probably not working in another. Sometimes it's adding another layer on top. Um, But I think internally, we've seen when we have this culture where you can question, where you can ask somebody like, hey, this seemed off to me. Why did you make that decision? What went into it? Um, That defaulting to open really empowers a lot of folks to say like, okay, like I respect, I trust my colleagues. I know this is matching the work that's happening on the ground. um, And we can feel really proud to go forward in our day to day. And I think too, that culture of openness that we have involves bringing people with us. So people who the way that we told stories in the past was resonating with, we work really hard to educate them and bring them along. We're not just focused on getting those people who might not have been interested before, but really just having the biggest tent possible. Well, I think this is such an amazing example of really this shift to community-centric fundraising, where it's not just about the donor. It's not what the donor wants. It's what the community needs. And so I think that's what I'm hearing out of this, that y'all have done such a fantastic job. And I know you feel like your work is never done. There's always more to do and continue to improve. Um, But I know as somebody who's been around this space for a really long time, I don't always hear organizations talking like this and putting this level of intentionality into the experience and the wording and the messaging. And so I I say super kudos to you. Um, So if there's other people that are listening who are just as impressed as I am, where can people learn more about Sleep Out, about Covenant House? Where can we direct them? Well, you can 
find our website is sleepout.org um, for all of our upcoming sleepout events to see more about our program. Um, we talked at the beginning about, you know, our signature sleepout model is really our largest, but we do have DIY sleepout options that are pre-pandemic, if if you can believe it. We were fortunate enough that we had those options set up. Um, so there's you know, that whole side of the program that we haven't gotten into. And then if you want to read more about Covenant House, our work, our young people, um, the website is covenanthouse.org. Our social media channels are very active in sharing stories and what's going around, uh, go, what's going on around our shelters in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America also. I'll speak for Megan and say we're both on LinkedIn also. We love talking about this stuff. It's never done. We don't have all the answers, but we're happy to be thought partners and talk with folks if you have something that's going on and you want to try to figure out the best way forward. I mean, we're not done. We have questions that are still coming up in our work every day. We're in a very heated discussion about cardboard right now, which I'm happy to talk with anyone about. But it's these conversations are never done. And if you need an external ear, I know Meg and I are very are both very passionate about this and and happy to happy to connect. Awesome. Well, we are going to list all of that in our show notes. So if you want to connect uh, with Megan or with Colleen or just learn more about Covenant House or even register for a sleep out program and raise money, I'm sure they would love it. We will have that link available in our show notes. So Colleen and Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. I think this is such an important topic where we can all do better the next time to your point. Um, And just want to say kudos to you on all your great work and Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Marcy. Thank you so much for having us. The P2P Soapbox is produced in partnership with True Story FM, engineering by Pete Wright. Music this week is by Tsabutan. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, we hope you'll consider doing just that for our show. But the best thing that you can do to support the P2P Soapbox is simply to share the show with a friend or colleague. Thank you for listening.